Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in Folklore. I'm Rachel Hopkin, one of the hosts of the channel. And today's guest is Claire Schmidt, who's here to talk about her first book. It's called If You Don't Laugh, You'll Cry, The Occupational Humor of White Wisconsin Prison Workers. Claire Schmidt, welcome to New Books in Folklore. Thank you for having me. So, um... Some of the interpretations of the word folklore in wide usage don't necessarily correlate with how the term is understood within the discipline of folklore studies. So I guess I wanted to start by asking you what you understand by that word folklore and how the occupational humor of prison workers qualifies as folklore. Sure. For me, um, Dan Benamos' definition of folklore, folklore is artistic communication in small groups. And that definition is expansive. And so um, it embraces a lot of uh, kinds of knowledge and practices and um, oral traditions that, you know, fall within the purview of folklore. So if we think of it as, you know, non-institutionally taught knowledge or um, ways of saying things, ways of doing things, um, ways of understanding oneself and the world around one, then uh, this is very much folklore. And so uh, folklorists have been interested in occupations and sort of the knowledge and the tools and the specialized communication that goes along with different professions. So historically, um, folklorists have been really interested in super manly stuff. So lumberjacking or fishing or working in steel mills, um, things that uh, are really, really full of men. Uh, and then over you know the last 20 or 30 years, uh, occupational folklorists have, have sort of expanded that understanding that you know work um, and the lore of work um, applies to, upper class professions um, just as much as it does to um, very blue collar working class professions. And so because I come from, you know, a lower middle class background and I'm really interested in the kinds of occupations that I grew up around, I wanted to write about um, the traditional jokes, uh, the traditional pranks, uh, the traditional genres of stories that are told um, about the job and around the job and the ways that um, that people teach the job and speak the job, as Tim Tangerlini has said uh, in his work with paramedics, how we talk about um, what we do is very revealing when you want to understand an occupation. That's grand. Um, so we're going to hear more about this in a moment. But before we get to the book itself, I wondered if you could tell me how you came to be a folklorist and perhaps not a prison worker, because I understand that's very much part of your family background. Yeah, um, I think probably lots of folklorists would say this. But I think if you ask family members, they would say, oh, yeah, like always, duh, this person was going to become a folklorist because it was, you know, the kids sitting around listening to the adults talk and taking notes about, oh, I've never heard that story before. And this word and this practice and sort of the maybe a compulsive desire to document, to understand, um, to save information um, and to recognize patterns in speech, recognize patterns in behavior, um, but also to appreciate the artistic um investment that people make um, when they play practical jokes on each other or when they tell ridiculous stories um, at the Thanksgiving dinner table. So I have always been interested in nearly every aspect of folklore and read uh, very much as a kid. When I was growing up in Wisconsin, um, we listened to Down Home Dairyland, which was a, a radio program put out by Jim Leary and Richard Marsh. And so it played Wisconsin folk music. Um, My parents, my grandparents 
even my grandparents, my great grandparents were very interested in folk music and traditional music. So, you know, I was raised on Lead Billy and Woody Guthrie and Arlo Guthrie and um, the Staples family. And so um, I was surrounded by an appreciation for folklore and I grew up reading folk tales and uh, fairy tales. So it was everywhere. Um, and But I didn't seriously consider it. And for a long time, uh, I worked as an environmental activist and uh, in Madison. And as I was finishing a, an undergraduate degree in English, um, I stumbled into a class on ballads taught by uh, Jack Niles, at the, who was at the University of Wisconsin and had just joined it around the same time I had. Um, and this class blew my mind wide open and it was easily the most influential class I've ever taken. I learned so much on this ballad class and he had Jim Leary, a really, really important uh, Wisconsin folklorist and, and, you know, long, long time contributor to the field. Uh, and Jim gave a guest lecture and then I realized, oh, this is, this is the guy with the radio show. This is the guy who... Uh, is all these songs and he played, you know, Wisconsin ballads. And I'm a, I'm not sure what generation, my family has been in Wisconsin for a really long time. So um, it was the really powerful experience of seeing yourself um, replicated that I think, you know, white people like me, we get to see this a lot, but it's still really meaningful when it happens. And so when you recognize your own folklore and your own self, um, and then you realize that it has a value that is exciting. And then Jim said, well, you could go to grad school. And so after a while I did, and um, <clears throat> I, I enjoy my work so much. Um, and I was able to work with uh, John Foley, who's an oral tradition scholar, and Elaine Lawless, um, who's of course well known for uh, her work with um, reciprocal ethnography, ethical ethnography, feminist folklore, women's folklore, and Anon Prahlad, um, who, you know, is very well known for his post-colonial uh, uh, approaches to folklore, but also, you know, both are quite invested in um, creative ethnography as well. So I was lucky to work with lots of great people and um, who've supported me in my work. So this was at the University of Missouri, where, and you're now based in Missouri um, at a different uh, educational institution. Um, so, so this has been very Missouri-based kind of period of study and work. But your your book is set in um, it's all based in Wisconsin. So, can you tell us a little bit about how the book came about? Sure. Um, when I was an undergraduate at the University of Wisconsin, Jim Leary said. Hey, do you want a job? I got a part-time job for you. And I said, sure. Cause I really like working and I'm really interested in work and I will never turn down work. And so he said, ah, you can work on this Wisconsin weather stories project. We need a folklorist. Well, I've taken exactly two folklore courses, but yes, I'm definitely interested. Um, but in order to have this job, um, which was really exciting and really fun, um, working on the Wisconsin weather stories project, which won um, some awards with uh, American folklore society, um, with Ann Pryor and, and Jim Lear and others. Um, I had to re-enroll as a student. I just graduated. So I took a class in American folklore and um, we needed to do an ethnography. So I interviewed my grandfathers who both worked in prisons and um, worked up this very basic, you know, ethnographic portrait of this occupation. And then um, I came back to it during my master's work and thought a lot more about the humor and realized that what I am really, really interested in is humor and then thought about it some more during my PhD work. And then it became part of a dissertation that was um, uh, a comparative ethnography of the occupational humor of social workers and prison workers, because my family is full of both. Um, and so sort of once I had defended my dissertation and took a little bit of a breathing space. I was lucky enough to um, be accepted into a first book workshop um, that was uh, funded by the Mellon Foundation uh, and organized through the University of Illinois Press, the University of Wisconsin Press and the University of uh, Mississippi Press. So I was able to you know, be in a workshop with amazing peers, amazing mentors um, who really helped us understand um, the process of, of writing and revising and presenting um, an academic book, a sustained argument. So uh, it's done now, uh, and I have many people to thank for it. 
Um, well, there's a, a section of acknowledgements in the book, uh, which people can turn to for those thank yous. We won't cover them all here. <laughs> but um, I'm just curious, just briefly before we go on to the book itself, can you tell me a little bit about um, that process of changing a dissertation into a, a, a published book? Um, I mean, was there lots of revision to do and what, what was the nature of that revision in a nutshell? Huge revision. I rewrote nearly every word uh, and sometimes several times. Uh, but it was great. I learned so much about writing. I learned so much about um, making an argument. Um, and, uh, you know, Ruth Olson, uh, who's on, uh, who's with the Center for Studies, in, uh, Center for CSMC, uh, Studies in Upper Midwestern Cultures, um, was, was a big mentor through the process. And so, uh, you know, what the book became was maybe a third of the dissertation, um, but I tore everything down structurally and, and in general and just rewrote the whole thing a couple of times. Wow, good for you. Okay. So the book's um, wonderfully readable and, and full of lots of humorous stories, although um, it's not all humor by any manner of means. So I just wonder if you could start taking us through. You start with an introduction, which is very much setting out a context, isn't it? Can you tell us a little bit about that context? Well, um, Wisconsin as a state uh, has a lot of prisons. Um, and as Wisconsinites, um, lots of us work or are fed because of uh, prisons. And so I am really interested in the relationship between race and power um, and uh, incarceration. And so we know in Wisconsin, uh, which is a state that has historically seen itself as progressive, like we claim the birthplace of the progressive party in Wisconsin, um, it is not a, a friendly place for people of color. And so um, African-Americans, Hispanic Americans, uh, and Native Americans are incarcerated at rates far, far higher than the national average. And so um, this uh, social injustice of, um, that maybe begins with profiling and uh, is continued in sentencing plays out very, very clearly um, in the sentences that are lived out by inmates, both male and female in Wisconsin. Um, and at the same time, uh, working at prisons is, is very taxing. Um, it is tremendously stressful. Um, it's, uh, it is a, um, uh, it's part of, uh, the criminal justice field, but, uh, prison workers do not get heroic status like, um, police officers might. And, um, it's very difficult to, um, explain what you do and why you do it to outsiders. So I think it's a very isolating field as well. Um, on the other hand, I think that people who work in prisons have a great deal of insight into um, issues of race and class and criminal justice and mental illness. Um, and certainly uh, not all prison guards are good or bad people. They're just people like all people. Um, but I think um, understanding how Understanding your role in upholding an unjust system, I think, can be very emotionally and spiritually taxing for people who work in prison. So this is an ethnographic work to a certain extent. You obviously, I, I think I'm right in understanding you didn't actually go inside prisons. Is that right? That's right. I decided early on in the project that I was not going to go into prisons. Instead, I wanted to study the verbal art. Um, and a lot of this is is very um, is very focused on stories, narrative, um, and the, some of the material culture and some of the ephemeral material culture uh, that lives on the internet um, to a lesser extent um, through the ways that the job comes home um, rather than trying to go into the prison. Um, that's just, that's not my place. I would be obstructive and, um, and it puts it would put my collaborators in significant uh, danger, I think, um, from political reprisal or um, other consequences. So taking a lot of care to make sure that 
the people who shared their experiences with me uh, did not suffer negative consequences. So it's really important. So in terms of the people that you did um, interview uh, and focus on in the book, um, how did you go about select finding them and selecting them and so on and so forth? It's a great question. Um, when I started the project, I interviewed every person who worked in a prison who would stand still long enough for me to uh, talk with them. And so uh, I did lots and lots and lots of interviews with people I didn't know um, or with people who you know, were friends of friends of friends or people I would run into in the grocery store or people who would see what I was reading on the bus. Um, and so I talked to as many prison workers as I could. In terms of what I used in the book, I decided that I wanted to focus on the experiences of people that were known to me, um, that I was, uh, I was part of their life, they were part of my life, so that then I would be able to share the manuscript with them uh, at various stages so that they would feel comfortable enough saying, no, you have this wrong here, or I think you've misunderstood this, or... Um, have you, uh, what I really think is happening is this other thing um, so that I would be able to find them always um, so I would know where they live so that I can give them a copy of the book and then say, okay, can we talk about this? So multiple interviews uh, was really important and um, being able to uh, um, work with people uh, who were, let's say, that I owed something to, to make sure that I was ethical and careful. Um, and it's a lot easier to be unethical when you're writing about people you don't know that you're not going to see again. So it was an ethical choice. So these are people who were uh, known to you because of your family uh, uh, connections to people working in the prison service. That's right. Um, both of my grandfathers worked in prisons uh, for their entire career. One as a, as an officer, or what you would think of, a guard, um, and one as a social worker who specialized in working with violent sex offenders. Um, and they carpool to work sometimes uh, together. Then I have an uncle uh, who worked as as a correctional officer, and then worked as a parole agent, and. Um, and held various positions. My my Erset's godmother uh, is a is a uh, worked as a guard until she retired just a few years ago. Um, my Erset's other godmother and godfather uh, also uh, both had worked in prisons, and one of their sons uh, worked as a correctional officer. So when when my family gets together, um, or when there's a big group camping trip where lots and lots of friends of families where where people all get together. Um, prison is, is, is constantly present. The Department of Corrections is like the third person sitting at the table, um, constantly a part of, can you pay your mortgage? How about that health insurance? You know, I'm sorry you couldn't have that day off. So prison is a big part of it. Yes, and in fact, you cover this kind of boundary between um, life as a working with inside the, the prison and negotiating how one... Uh, Remains a prison worker, but in a in a family situation uh, outside in, in, later on in the book. But we'll come to that in a little bit because I want to start by um, by coming to we'll go through the book um, in stages and it's, it's divided into three sections, three parts. So tell me what is part one about? Part one is the background information, largely. So what? How many prisons does Wisconsin have, and who works there? And how do they shape the communities in which the prisons are sited? And um, how do uh, employees interact with inmates? Because this book isn't about the experiences of incarcerated people. Um, it's not my story. I, I, it's an important story that needs to be told, but I'm not the person who can do that story justice. Um, but uh, people who live in prisons are uh, there. That is, that is what makes up a prison. And so the relationships between people who work in prison and people who are doing time in prison um, shapes the job. Um, and the first part of the book sort of uh, outlines the kinds of expressive culture and specifically the, the expressive culture that is intended to be funny. 
um, as, as a person transitions to, uh, to work and back to the home. I was quite shocked when you were kind of like laying out some of the information, the background information to um, learn that average lifespan for a prison worker after leaving uh, on retirement is one and a half years. Uh, that's, so what makes the job so difficult and so stressful and so hard on, on, the, on the people who work in, in, in the profession? I think that um, it's a combination of, uh, I think some of it is physical and a lot of it is psycho- psychological. And so uh, in terms of the physical stress, there's a lot of downtime, uh, a lot of sitting um, quite often. So for people who work in, um, observation towers, you sit and you stare for a shift, or maybe you get called to work a double. So you sit and stare for two shifts. Um, and so you can walk around and get rounds in. Um, but there's a lot of, there's not a lot of opportunity, um, to do sort of a healthy moving things. Um, next, it's shift work. And so shift work, you know, working first shift or second shift or third shift uh, is really noted for its uh, impacts on lifestyle and health um, because you might be separated from, you know, sort of the traditional family rhythms. Uh, it, it makes diet more difficult to navigate. Uh, it makes sleep very difficult to navigate. Um, and so uh, when you're switching from, I work first shift today, but, you know, tomorrow I got to work second. Um, Your body has a hard time adjusting and that's really difficult. Um, So any shift work is difficult. But then I think a lot of the stress um, comes from being in a dangerous environment. And so some institutions, you know, minimum security institutions tend to have far fewer violent instances because the people who are there have a lot to lose. They're they're going to go home really soon. Um, and so they're very invested in making sure that things run smoothly. But working in a maximum security prison um, can be really difficult, uh, especially men's prisons. And there's always the threat of violence, whether it's violence between inmates or uh, violence directed towards staff. So um, sometimes people get hurt. And a lot more often, there's the threat of being hurt, and there's the need to be constantly vigilant, while at the same time, not much is happening. And so the combination of impending danger and extreme boredom is very difficult to manage. Um, And then it's very difficult to maintain family relationships, Uh, especially in Wisconsin right now. uh, There's a a staffing crisis uh, within the Department of Corrections. And so new officers um, have to work lots and lots and lots of uh, extra time. So that makes it very difficult to pick up your kids from school when you're supposed to, um, or, you know, conform to a custody uh, agreement. If you get ordered to work a double at a certain time, you miss Christmas, you miss Thanksgiving. um, You don't feel like talking when you get home. So I think all in all, uh, the relationship of, um, sort of difficult physical aspects and difficult emotional and social aspects um, really contributes to a compromised life expectancy and and long-term health outcomes for people who work in prisons. So the next chapter you come, you've written, chapter two, is, is uh, titled, Does Prison Make You Racist? Which is uh, quite an interesting title. And I, I was struck by the fact you are only... Um, uh, this is a study of white prison workers. Um, so I guess my question is, does a, a prison make you wear a racist or does working in a prison make you racist? I think working in prison changes your understanding of race in the United States. Um, I directly asked uh, my collaborators if, uh, if working in prison made them racist. And uh, their responses were, no, but, or yes, but. And so there's not a clear answer to that question. I think that um, a lot of people who work in prisons, uh, a lot of white people who work in prisons do not encounter people of culture, do not encounter people of color during their everyday life. Um, It's very easy 
uh, for white people to live in a largely white uh, environment. This has been really thoroughly studied. But people who work in prison, uh, those white people tend to have their first experiences of what it's like to be an ethnic minority, um, what it's like to be surrounded by people coming from other cultures who speak a different way, who look a different way, um, who have a different understanding of how the world works. And so um, my collaborators agreed that um, if you see, if the only people of color you interact with are inmates at a maximum security prison for men, you're going to form certain ideas about black men or Hispanic men that uh, are informed by that experience that will not be easy to eradicate from one's mind. On the other hand, um, these are not new ideas. Um, it's not like uh, uh, people who work in prison are divorced in some way from the other understandings of uh, black masculinity or Hispanic or Latino masculinity. So um, a lot of the people that I interviewed said, maybe if that's your only experience, then you might, uh, then you might be a racist. You might think or say or do racist things. On the other hand, um, a lot of white people um, have zero contact with people of color and so have a very um, limited understanding of um, actual living people of color as opposed to people on television or people whose music they listen to. So um, in terms of spending a lot of time with not white people, um, white prison workers certainly have a lot of experiences and insights into, um, into that experience of being a person of color in the United States. Um, it's not simple though. I think is the answer. Right, right. Um, and one of the things you cover uh, quite extensively in the book is, uh, or at least you re keep ref you you refer to many times, is is the fact that the um, incarceration system operates in such a way that people of color are disproportionately represented in the prison population when compared to the population at large. And this is because of, um, often because of, not because of a necessarily higher crime rate amongst these people, but amongst the, but more to do with the way that um, the policies regarding incarceration and regarding how certain crimes are targeted by law enforcement um, officials. Um, Am I right in understanding that? And if so, is is this something that the, the um, correctional officers have a much awareness of? Definitely. Um, when I talked to uh, my collaborators, they referenced uh, mandatory minimum sentencing a lot. And so certain crimes have a mandatory minimum that then uh, a person is sentenced with. And so, uh, for example, crack cocaine versus powder cocaine. We know that, you know, from very, very clear, very big studies, white people and black people uh, use crack and sell crack at about the same rate. And yet overwhelmingly, um, people serving significant time in prison for crack-related offenses are black um, because of uh, who gets stopped and has their car searched or um, who, what neighborhoods uh, are sort of given a pass. I think people who work in prison are super aware of this um, and have a lot of critique for um, especially nonviolent drug offenses um, and, and a lot of hostility toward um, policies that have made our prisons overcrowded, uh, unnecessarily overcrowded, have broken families unnecessarily. And so many of the people I uh, interviewed would talk about marijuana and uh, how absurd they found it, that they had to spend their time, in their words, babysitting people 
because of pot, uh, that it was an enormous waste of taxpayer money and an enormous waste of their own personal time that could have been spent in far more useful ways. So um, I think no one is a bigger critic of the criminal justice system than people who work in the criminal justice system. Um, But it's also very hard to express those views in a way that is... um, that would not be perceived as hostile toward one's coworkers. And so that's really important too. It's very difficult to be, um, there's a huge line between insider and outsider. And so we rarely see um, corrections workers critiquing the correction system on television because that violates an enormous code of behavior. Although later in the book, you do, you do come to a section where, uh, uh, where you're looking at how, uh, they are using humor to make digs at the institutions for which they work and the more broader um, uh, part of the justice system that they they form part of um, we'll come to that in a little in a little while i'm curious did did you come across any um, correctional officers who were people of color? I, yeah, I've talked to a lot of correctional officers, uh, mostly black correctional officers, uh, a few Native American and Hispanic correctional officers. And I think that um, their experiences are, they share a lot of similarities with the experiences of white correctional officers, but they share a lot of differences as well. And I think there's an enormous expectation for officers of color to empathize, to understand um, the experiences of inmates, but the line between officer and inmate is uh, is not crossable. And so it creates a lot of potential stress. Uh, so I think I wouldn't want to extend all of my arguments to officers of color because um, the, the, the racial dynamic is enormously powerful. Yes, of course, of course. So in the next chapter, which is the last chapter of the first part, it's called Don't Take Your Work Home With You. And it's about negotiating the, the boundaries between work and home. Um, so, of course, you first got introduced to all of this in the home environment, right? You were being told jokes around Thanksgiving and, and, and things like that. Do you remember some of the jokes that stood out for you when you were uh, a kid growing up with these um uh, grandfathers who were correctional officers and so on and so forth? The ones that were really memorable were imitations of um, inmates or patients who had been at the Wisconsin Central State Hospital for the criminal insane. It's uh, an institution that is no longer there. That's not what it's called anymore. But it was uh, a place where um, people who had profound mental illnesses and had also committed uh, serious crimes were housed. And so, for example, Ed Gein, uh, you know, who is the loose inspiration for The Silence of the Lambs was there and he paneled my grandfather's office. And apparently he was an excellent dancer and a really good basketball player and not a bad carpenter either. And so there were these characters who were inmates or patients who had very, very noticeable um, mannerisms, largely due to their mental illnesses or the medications they were taking Uh, They were very easy to imitate, and the imitations were highly appreciated by people who knew um, these inmates, these inmate patients. And um, this is something that social workers do today is, um, you know, make fun of their patients, imitate their mannerisms. Certainly it's hostile. Certainly it is completely inappropriate. And yet it fulfills, I think, a really important uh, need for people who do this kind of job. Um, and I was struck by some of the thing, the, the humor that you you use when you're um, talking about this issue of negotiating these boundaries. There's something on page uh, 61, 62, and it's it's um it comes from 45 signs that you're a correctional officer, and it includes things like you. This is outside of the prison, that, but you you throw away a full can of soda because it was out of your sight for 30 seconds, um, for example. Um, or um, the buzzer in a TV basketball game makes you jump because I presume that relates to a sound that you would hear inside the prison. Um, uh, before you can buy a woman a drink, you have to make sure she doesn't have an Adam's apple. Um uh, so there was; those were some of the ones I, I, w- I was noticing. Um, 
So I was curious in terms of this as, as well in terms of your research process, because presumably there, there, are, there are humorous stories that you can tell to the whole family. There are humorous stories that a correctional officer can tell to a researcher like you, particularly one who has um, some insider access. And then in term, insider access in terms of coming from a, a, a family that has prison workers, I don't mean insider access to the prison itself. But then there are probably, I, I would imagine there's humor that cannot be told even to you with your, um, all your connections and so on and so forth. I mean, did, did you ever kind of cover that tent in the abstract? Did you ever talk about things that they couldn't tell you? Only a little bit. I tried really hard to not ask the question, what's the worst thing you ever saw? Uh, because I think that is, that's an annoying question. I think it's almost as annoying as, you know, making the don't drop the soap joke. Like it's, it is expected and it's not the point. So I didn't ask for those stories. I would have been glad to hear them, but I think the act of telling them would have been, uh, it would have felt really inappropriate to be telling that story to this person. Mostly I was interviewing people who of, you know, maybe my parents and my grandparents' generation, a few people from my generation. But I think those stories, uh, because largely because of issues of gender, I think, um, and then issues of, you know, insider, outsider, I didn't ask. We talked a lot about things you don't want to say at home. And um, I wanted to leave that alone and, and not push that boundary. Oh, no, I totally get that. And I wasn't really thinking that you would have asked um, such questions because they pr probably wouldn't be answered anyway. But did you, I just was more curious as to whether you approach the things that that you weren't approaching, if if, if that makes sense. Um, but there seems to have been plenty to cover even without going into that. Um, so, so what did you learn in, in the course of this kind of... Um, this boundary uh, inside uh, inside the work role back in, into ho home role um, that maybe surprised you? Or maybe it would surprise your readers, if not you, since you have so much background in it. I think for me, um, the thing that was surprising, but also shouldn't have been surprising, is that... Um, Outsiders don't know what to say. And so um, storytellers don't want to tell stories that aren't going to work for an audience. Uh, and I think that being verbal and being a really good storyteller is an essential part of being a successful correctional officer. The, the ability to tell a story and to build a story around you that other people can inhabit for a little while is an enormous skill. And so the ability to judge your audience then is an immense part of that. And so you don't want to tell a story that someone is going to say, oh, you're so sick, or that was awful. How could you do that? Or um, so what? So is, that's the end of the story. Okay. Um, and so I think there's a perception that outsiders aren't interested. Outsiders um, don't know what to say. They'll feel uncomfortable. Um, and so a need to sort of have a set of narratives that you can pull out when someone says, oh, you work in a prison, that sounds messed up. Uh, and, and have those stories ready. Um, my sister's a social worker and um, one of my best friends had done work that is sort of in between social work and prison work. And they both talked about like they would have incredibly complicated, interesting, difficult days. And they would come home and someone would say, how was your day? And they'd be like, I just fine. It's totally because there just weren't words um, that would be um, that could fit into that context. At the same time, um, when you have a community with a lot of insiders, then you can have those eavesdroppers like me who sit around on the edges and listen to one officer tell another officer a story that they both find hilarious and I don't know why it's funny. Um, so um, when you have that mass, that, that critical mass of, of people within the culture, then what, uh, what can come home is a much bigger pool. 
And actually, I, this leads on very neatly into part two, because uh, very early in part two, you, you, I think you say, you write something about um, part of your interest in, in, in doing this research was to find out whether your family or family and your friends in, in the who, who do work in these correctional facilities are just unusually funny, or if that's part of the job. So tell us a little bit about what part two is uh, covering. Uh, the second book, part of the book uh, is really focuses on the ways that humor is doing work, that humor is a part of the work of making a prison function or um, being a parole agent. And so the ways that humor is used to um, initiate new members, the ways that humor is used to teach new people traditions or keep people in line, don't get above yourself. Um, the second part of the book really fo uh, focuses on humor, but also the ways that, you know, no one teaches you in school that you need to be funny. By the way, you need to learn to tell good stories. You need to learn to make people laugh because if you can't, um, people are going to make fun of you. Um, so I think the verbal quickness and the ability to uh, have a comeback, to do, you know, do verbal sparring, um, that is funny, but has an edge in it because um, so many interactions are inherently combative, both in prisons and out of prisons. Um, <clears throat> these are skills that if you get good at it at work, you bring it home with you. And so I uh, grew up with a lot of adults who are very verbally fast. Um, they could think really quickly and come up with answers and smart remarks, and I could never keep up. And so I just was fascinated by this. But then, you know, the more I taught, the more I worked with students, the more I saw, found myself like needing that kind of repartee, that, that kind of back chat um, that is uh, really necessary when you need people to do something you want them to do that they don't really want to do. Um, Right. And I'm actually curious, in the course of all the people that you interviewed, many of whose um, uh, contributions may not have ended up in this book, did you find anybody who seemed to be lacking a sense of humor and uh, and you had to maybe rule them out of being a potential interviewee in the uh, for the final work? Ah, that's a good question. There were definitely people who I didn't find funny, um, that they were... They were throwing me jokes and I was, you know, nodding and smiling, but it just wasn't funny or it wasn't working for me. Um, and then there were people who had really um, entertaining, maybe verbal mannerisms. Um, they were good at sort of the, the flashy talk, but then had a hard time laughing at themselves or, you know, it didn't. The humor didn't go deep enough to be, you know, to reflect on the very strange uh, juxtapositions that you get in a job like this. Um, so I think there are many different kinds of humor and certain kinds really thrive. And the ability to laugh at yourself and the ability to, um, to tease in a way that is not undermining is very effective. Um, but I think not every, as, as my collaborators talked a lot about, like if you can't learn that, the job of getting people to do stuff they don't want to do is much harder. Right. And, and um, you make it very clear in this book that, that learning to laugh is a really important part of, of taking on um, the role of a correctional officer. Can you tell us some of the kind of, um, and there's a whole kind of, um, body of jokes that are related to transforming uh, outsiders into insiders, I think, um, which is the, the subject of uh, chapter five, i.e. transforming people who have not worked in the prison uh, service before into prison workers. So can you, can you tell us a little bit about how that worked? Yeah, I think that a lot of transformative humor uh, involves uh, making a person look stupid um, and then learning to deal with the fact that someone just made you look stupid and to be able to up the ante and embrace how stupid you just looked. So, you know, sending people on, you know, fake errands to go find something that doesn't exist. Um, the Kushmaker, there's, uh, I think Alan Dundas has written about this. Um, uh, the, 
um, you know, giving someone a humiliating nickname, painting something on their lunchbox, um, where you have to embrace hostility in order to embrace friendship. And so I think a lot of learning to laugh is first learning to laugh at an attack on yourself, because that's something that is, is a constant feature of working in prison, whether it's an attack on the way you look or the way you sound or who you are, or a more subtle attack that is, you know, attempting to get uh, you to do something that you don't want to do. And so building that kind of, um, that kind of thick skin where you can catch an attack and up the ante and throw it back in a way that is funny is, is very helpful. What a, yes, what are the, sorry, I, I didn't mean to cut you off there. Did we, we, so one of the hazing um, jokes that I found funny when I was going through this was, uh, it was something to do with a prison guard needing a key from somebody on a watchtower, I think. And he had to keep, he was told that the code to get this was uh, Rosebud. So he was shouting Rosebud up at this, um, the, the person in the watchtower for a very long time until the person in the watchtower finally said, look, stop yelling Rosebud at me. What are you doing? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so that's a fairly straightforward one because obviously Rosebud was not the key to getting the key. Um, but uh, can you think of a more subtle, uh, an example of a more subtle joke that, that has to do with getting somebody, someone to do something they don't want to do, which is, uh, as you said, it's, it's, not e- it's not an easy thing to do? That's a really good question. I think quite often uh, a person has to create a situation where um, for a minute the staff is aligned with the inmate. And so, um, for example, there's a a story that one of my collaborators told me about um, an inmate who was taking a shower and there were no towels and he wanted a towel. And one guard said no. And the guard who uh, was the person I was interviewing said like, seriously, we need to be able to find this guy a towel. And then um, the guard was insisting, no, 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 he'll survive without a towel. And so the person I interviewed, his response was to then fan the inmate dry with his clipboard, like this instrument of uh, authority and power. And so for a second to make him, you know, subservient to this poor guy who just wanted a towel, um, he makes himself look stupid he makes the institution look absurd and like, of course you can get a towel. And then of course they did get a towel. Um, so to, to temporarily um, create imaginative space where, you know, we're not in opposition for just a second, we can work together, I think can be helpful. What you're covering now is actually one of my favorite parts of the book. So it's part of, it's, it's chapter six, humor and inmate staff relationships. Um, because so often we hear about a correctional officers or we see them portrayed as these kind of inhumane um malign forces within prisons this is what you often see in, in popular culture and you deal you you discuss this and talk about the impact that it has on on the prison workers um but here we see some lovely examples of of this humor working between the the um correctional officers and the inmates or in the way that the uh, correctional officers are talking about the inmates. For example, there was one, I think one very, one uh, officer who is relating to you how uh, charmed he was by the great pains a particular uh, prisoner took to make his bed all neat and then places a chocolate on top of the pillow or something like that. Is that right? (laughs) And carry on, carry on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the, that kind of coping was, was seen as, you know, it's he's doing it as a joke. It's hilarious and ridiculous. And for a second, like, everyone gets to print it and like, ah, yeah, prison's great. You come home, that's chocolate on your pillow. Look at that. Isn't that nice? And, and so, you know, that kind of response, messing with reality in that kind of positive way, um, I think is perceived by guards as not only um, helpful because it's a lot better than resisting and violence, but it's also just funny. And so to appreciate 
um, humor that is also self-deprecating, but at the same time refusing to give in to the despair and uh, the violence and the hatred around you. Um, I think that a lot of prison workers pick up a lot of smart talk and funny talk from uh, the people that they work with. I think they learn a lot about verbal repartee and about um, being funny from inmates. Uh, I think there's an enormous appreciation for uh, the verbal artist uh, in prison, um, the ways that people are creative and funny. I think it makes uh, staff's job easier, but then I think just fundamentally uh, as, as one storyteller to another storyteller, like that's good work. What you're doing is interesting and funny and I'm going to steal it because that bit really worked. Yeah, that, no, that makes absolute sense. And another one I really liked was where a, a prisoner who I think was quite well liked, but also got into very difficult um, emotional situations was trying to get a prison guard to make a telephone call for him or something. And eventually he just yelled at the guard, just stop resisting, which I think is what the guards always are saying to the prisoners that to have this turn back on him just was another very funny incident in the middle of quite a stressful situation where somebody is trying to get something done by somebody who else who doesn't want to do it. So I'm curious in terms of actually writing the chapters, did you have a favorite one to write? Oh, that's a really interesting question. I think no. Um, I like them differently for different things. I have favorite stories. I have um, ideas that, you know, I think even now I still haven't fully thought out. And so like, I'm still really interested in that chapter because I think I haven't quite figured out what's going on, but there's something that I want to get at. Um, but yeah, I, I, I very much like this chapter because it's nice to think about um, ways that people use traditional speech and uh, traditional humor techniques to temporarily not kill each other. Like these are really important techniques in a prison, but also in the everyday world. And so um, we use humor to create these these very temporary but very powerful vacations from all of the terrible things that we experience and you know, to be able to think about the kind of power that we have when we can make other people laugh and the ways that we can take stress away from them. Even if that stress is, you know, a prank phone call saying, hey, this guy in your caseload, this pedophile is down at the park with candy taped all over him. And then you have to come back and say, oh, no, I'm just messing with you. And then you have this moment of stress relief, like, oh, thank goodness, things are terrible, but at least that wasn't actually real. Um, it's so powerful. Um, and maybe it's powerful because we don't look at it straight on. We don't think about it too hard. But it is exciting when we think about resistance and when we think about ways that the very weak uh, can take on the very strong. Absolutely, absolutely. And you come uh, to to deal with resistance more, even more in the in the third section. Can you tell us a little bit about the overarching theme of the third section of the book? The last part of the book really focuses on um, the ways expressive culture can dismantle or subvert or prevent or hinder institutions. So can, you know, can refuse to do the work that is expected by the Department of Corrections. And so um, when a person is in an occupation, of course, they spend most of their time working toward the goals of that occupation. But then most people, I think, also spend a significant amount of time undermining and um, fighting back and trying to carve out space that is separate from this is what I do for a living um, or I am in alignment with the goals of this company or whatever the situation might be. So um, the third part of the book really looks at not only how uh, correctional humor undermines the correctional system or can refuse or resist the correctional system, but then also how it can refuse and resist sort of normative ideas about what a family is, what um, what it is to be gay or what it is to be straight. Um, and, and the ways that when you have to be a face for normativity, you can refuse that face, uh, at least temporarily, using humor. So could you maybe give us one or two examples of some, some uh, stories that you told you were told that really stood out 
for you from this section? Uh, I think the thing that I thought a lot about was uh, the son of the people I might consider to be my godparents and his initial experiences working as a correctional officer and talking about the things that his friends said to him when he went to work in a prison and uh, saying like, oh, you're going to go watch a bunch of dudes having sex and then needing to say like, yes, I am. Yep. I am really, really excited about it. It's going to be great. Like having to then, you know, for a straight white kid in his twenties to say like, I am so interested in gay sex. Yep. I am a lot. Uh, So to, um, to to take that joke like oh you must be gay if you like watching men have sex and then saying yes i am is 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 really um it undermines uh the sort of low level base level homophobia that is is pretty standard and refuses to be categorized as a homophobe um even though the sincerity is not there even though he's not going to go watch men have sex uh still refusing this um, very boring, very stereotypical idea about prison. Yeah, that's a that's a great example, um, and that's in the first part of of this final section, um, a chapter called "Upholding and Undermining Social Institutions: Gay Jokes and Christmas in Prison." What what, what jokes come out of Christmas in prison? Well, I think uh, there are many many jokes about Santa Claus and uh, child molestation. Uh, this gets referenced in the 45 signs you're uh, a correctional officer. And um, there's a lot of jokes about Chester Claus and, and this, the figure of Chester the molester. And so uh, there's a lot of commentary, I think, among both officers and inmates about Santa Claus and this undermining of Santa Claus, who is good and true and beautiful and, and making him into um, a, a scary, problematic figure. But at the same time, you know, I, I think about a story that another uh, collaborator told me about um, men at a medium security prison, like putting on their own Christmas pageant and um, wanting to have uh, pictures of the guards shaking Santa down and and uh, see the guards humiliate poor Santa Claus. I think there's a lot of refusal of the dominant narrative of Christmas because it's unbearable, I think, to embrace it in a sincere way when you're in prison. Um, so I think uh, I think refusing Christmas is a powerful way of refusing an institution that, that tells stories that don't feel true. Right, right. Then in the next chapter, you're looking at how um, the, the workers in, in these institutions uh, can play the fool or uh, to or en- enact acts of resistance through humor. One I particularly liked was um, a worker who was criticized and asked to rewrite a report uh, that was not um, long enough. And because basically nothing very much had happened to report on. So this is on page 186. He starts to push back and he says, He's re- he's now rewriting this uh, this report with the, with the more detail that he's been uh, asked to provide, and it, he starts out: the temperature was seventy two degrees, the barometric pressure was falling, resulting in a cold front coming in from the west, and um, in fact, this the report went on to be so kind of like outrageously detailed and and kind of out there that he was. Uh, this particular worker was sent off for uh, evaluation, I, I, I think. Yeah, he spent a significant time uh, off work because of this uh, report, which, you know, sort of blended in some apocalypse now sort of stream of consciousness, uh, trauma, uh, flashback situation. And it was a joke report, but the joke was taken very seriously. And uh and so he was he was off all summer long uh, and, you know, everyone understood it was a joke. And yet the institution had the power to say, like, we're going to take this seriously. We see your humor and we raise you sincerity and you are now on on leave. Um, it was uh, I think that, you know, the 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 administration recognized that a joke had been attempted and to say 
we see what you're doing. We see that you're calling these rules arbitrary and we see that you're questioning our authority and we will now impose our authority on you. We do not accept your joke. Uh, this was pretty, uh, was a pretty firm response. Right. It's actually very interesting. The parallel that provides with the inmate um, officer humor that you discuss earlier in the book, where there's there's humor that can go on between the inmates and the officers, but it's a very fine line that they have to walk. And and again, this is happening. We see this now happening between the officers and the broader institution. Um, yeah, there's a big divide between um, officers and management. And quite often officers say, oh, management sees us as inmates. We're, they see us as just the same as inmates. We are we are no better and we are expendable. And uh, so it's very difficult for a joking relationship to exist in unequal power structures. And so for a joke to be received as a joke means that hierarchy has to be temporarily suspended quite often. And it's very dangerous for a prison administration to suspend hierarchy, even for a little while. That is not to say it doesn't happen. And I think that um, low-ranking officers do quite often poke fun at administration and mess with them in, in very small ways uh, to see how far this boundary can be pushed. Then we come to the last chapter of your book. Can you tell us what this is? Because I think here you're moving away from how humor is used and making, and it's not a particularly humorous chapter. Yeah, uh, the... This chapter focuses on the stereotype of the prison guard. And I use that term because that's how it's most commonly used in movies and television. Um, and the issues of social class. And so a lot of the kinds of humor that we see uh, prison workers using, you can find parallels in more prestigious, more respected occupations such as um uh, doctor humor. And yet uh, this humor is acceptable coming from a doctor, uh, or at least a doctor on television, um, but is seen as pathological, violent, sadistic coming from a prison worker or a prison worker on television. And I think ultimately, you know, my argument is that um, when we cast the individual prison worker as um, the bad guy, who is the person um keeping this world racially unjust is a very convenient deflection um, because the prison worker individually uh, has very little control over uh, the social institutions that perpetuate uh, racial inequality in the United States. So I think that prison guards become a really convenient scapegoat uh, that are very, very easy to hate. And certainly there have been many terrible prison guards who have done terrible things um, but they are individuals and what we have is a system uh, that produces these inequalities. Right. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a very salient point. Um, we've taken up an awful lot of time uh, of yours, Claire. Is there anything that I, you wanted to say uh, about the book or about anything else that I didn't give you the chance to say already? I... I think the one thing that we didn't talk about, the book doesn't talk about, but I think is, is going to increasingly become important is the role of the internet plays in um, communicating um, occupational culture. I'm not going to, but is already and has for many, many years. And I think that um, it's a really exciting area that I've just barely explored. And I think that some of the most interesting um, examples of sort of a shared identity or identity that sort of bleeds into other family members and the ways that sort of tangential, tangentially affiliated people embody the identity and a stigmatized identity, whether that's of a police officer or a correctional officer is played out on the internet. So I think that's a fascinating thing that, that into the future, uh, I, I hope that Folklorus will address. Oh, well, that brings me to my last question, which in, in, in tradition of these podcasts is what are you working on now? Does it relate to internet um, uh, occupational culture or are you doing something else or 
have you no time to do something else because you're teaching lots of classes? <laughs> um, I'm working on, uh, you know, what will probably become an article uh, on sort of the use of memes online um, and, and GIFs uh, among particularly the families of people who work in prisons, not necessarily um, the way they're used by people who work in prisons. Uh, and I'm working slowly, desultorily, uh, but somewhat steadily uh, on a, a book project looking at the role of um, that food uh, plays in racism. And so focusing on food-related stereotypes and um, ways that we convey ideas about Which race. Which made me remember uh, that food. I have forgotten to ask you another question that I meant to ask you just before we uh, reach the end of this interview, which is, I know you were having, you you sent your interlocutors multiple drafts of your work and, and you had this process of, of uh, consultation with them about what you were writing. How do they feel about this book? That's a great question. And one that I'm not sure if I want to know the answer <laughs> to. Um, there were many, many times when I think that the things that I had written, whether in carelessness or in ignorance, uh, were hurtful to the people I was writing about. Uh, I think that the process turned up a lot of misinformation, um, a lot of, it, it, it brought to the forefront a lot of issues that are really difficult for people to discuss. But I think that the hardest thing was um, having to be in print. And certainly I use pseudonyms and I have done everything that I can to uh, protect confidentiality. But everyone knows who everyone else is um, because they are all connected um, in a social web. And I think that um, the way my uncle talked about it was, um, you know, it was really difficult to read the book, um, but it was okay that it was difficult. And it made him think about things a lot. And he was glad for that opportunity. That's a very kind way of saying like, this was a very painful experience for me. So um, I have zero plans to do another project like this because I'm glad I wrote this book. I'm glad I did the research. I felt someone should write about this and um, I, I, I wanted to be the person to do it because I wanted to do it in a way that I could live with. Um, but sharing your work and writing about living people with whom you are, you know, in a social ongoing situation is very difficult. Well, that's an excellent um thinking point uh, on which we can end our discussion. So Claire Schmidt, thank you so much for um, participating in New Books in Folklore. Thank you. It was a pleasure. <laughs>